So you've come because you've heard that there's going to be an outing of a famous Canadian art icon, right? So who do you think it is? Yeah. Who? <laughs> Any other? Any other? Yeah? Well, somebody spilled the beans, I think. Okay. So it's Krigoff. Cornelius Krigoff. Okay. And um, this isn't actually news to those who keep up with Canadian art history, right? Because uh, I did publish an article back in uh, 2003 in the Journal of Canadian Art History, uh, in which I brought forth the, the uh, evidence and uh, speculated a little bit on it. But I thought that today it might be kind of interesting just to kind of look at some of the, uh, of the uh, objects that uh, in a way support or at least encourage uh, this understanding. Uh, what I thought I'd do is sort of move us back in and I'll just talk a little bit very, very quickly about Krigoff and then go into another space where there are a couple of objects that relate very directly to the story and I'll tell you how I got onto this trail and, you know, what I think the evidence, uh, evidence is too strong a word, but what I think the, the, you know, the disclosed circumstances are that uh, support this understanding. And then we'll talk a little bit about what the implications, if any, you know, there might there might be to this. Okay, so come on up and. I'll ask you to come around the front. It's probably best like that, and then because I'm going to be trotting back and forth along here a little bit. So um, even though some of you weren't prepared for a Krigoff lecture, um, I'm hoping that you don't know everything about Krigoff, and so I can you know try to spend a little bit of time setting some, uh, setting some background here. So uh, he was uh, born in, in uh, Holland, actually, and uh, raised in, in Germany. Um, came to the United States as a very young man, enrolled in the U.S. Army, served in the U.S. Army briefly. Um, very curiously, um, re-enrolled when his, when his uh, term was up. Uh, he happened to be in Burlington, Vermont at that point. And uh, so re-enlisted, I'm sorry, re-enlisted, and then deserted, you know, the next week. And then within weeks of that, we have the record of a baptismal certificate from Boucherville, Quebec, and his son had been born. And he, in fact, had met a, a Quebecois woman in New York, and, yeah, one thing led to another. And uh, so he settled in Montreal in, in, uh, first in 1840, didn't stay long at all and uh, ended up working, it seems, as an itinerant painter. And so he was a painter from the beginning. We have no evidence of his having had any training in Europe. He worked briefly in the Montreal area. Then he shows up in Rochester, in Rochester, New York, and he's there for a while. And then Toronto, and he works in Toronto for a little bit. And then he ends up back in Montreal again um, in uh, uh, very late in 1845. And... Um, so that's a date to, to remember as we get on with the story later. So um, I guess I should just quickly then, stays in Montreal just until uh, 1853, moves to Quebec City, lives in Quebec City to 1863, and back to Europe, so on. And again, we'll get into that in a little bit more detail further on. So he's known for, of course, for these scenes of native life, 
typical Canadian life, let's put it that way. So what would, might have been understood by a, as a, by a newcomer or by a tourist or by a foreign uh, officer, you know, foreign, someone in the, in the British civil service, whatever, working in Canada, would have been understood to be typical Canadian life. So First Nations of the region of Montreal initially and then Quebec City and then the habitants the third and fourth generation Quebecers at that point in time. And um, the scenes tend to be, as we'll walk through, I'm just sort of a point something out, we have rooms devoted to native scenes in the Quebec City region, habitant scenes in the Montreal region, etc. So, that, you know, there was a real generic sense to it because he was very popular. He sold a lot of these. Um, and part of the great, great merit of having the Thompson Collection bestowing of so many of these is that you can see that, that although there's a level of repetition, there's nonetheless a constancy of creativity throughout that repetition still. So he's constantly varying and, you know, as he brings these elements together, even though he keeps striking the same themes because that was what people wanted to, that was what they were buying, right? Um, but every now and again he would do a much more major, more ambitious picture. And um, these often um, were uh, always, always still in that vein of being sort of generically about life in Canada at that point. Um, so the ice cone of Montmorency Falls, um, there are three or four of these of uh, real scale. And, um, but there is a very specific story behind this because Montmorency Falls, the Montmorency River is just downstream on the flows into the St. Lawrence downstream from Quebec City, not too very far, just sort of a comfortable distance outside of town. And during the winter, this phenomenon would happen because it was of this falls, although the river was frozen upstream at the brink, like at Niagara, it wouldn't freeze, of course, but the mist would rise and the mist would freeze and it would fall and it would create this huge cone over the course of the winter. And uh, that actually does happen in, at Niagara sometimes, what they call an ice bridge that happens. And it's a, the very same kind of phenomenon. So this became a kind of a site for uh, having a good time during the winter. And um, curiously enough, in Canada at this point, winter was the season of freedom. Winter was when you did have a good time because you didn't have to go out in the fields and work. Um, most commerce slowed right down. Um, and on top of it all, you could get around a hell of a lot easier because the rivers froze up and you could take sleighs out and, and go around. So it was a lot easier than the bumpy country roads and so on that otherwise you had to traverse. Um, so all of the, uh, everyone who was anybody in Quebec City would every Sunday convene around Montmorency, out on the ice of the St. Lawrence River. And it was so popular that they used to cut steps in it so you could get to the top and toboggan down the other side. And certain winters, when it was really popular, they'd carve a room into it that served as a tavern. And uh, so it really was for the good times on a Sunday afternoon and for promenading. You know, so people went out with their fancy sleighs to be seen and to see, right? So another similar kind of situation. Um, this is uh, just a whole series of these, various uh, variations on this theme. And it's called, uh, you know, after a wedding in Quebec, or it's called uh, uh, the morning after Chez Jolifou, or, you know, sort of, sort of a generic title, again, of the end of a good party, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, we've actually traced it down, and this is an actual inn that was located just up above Montmorency, and it was called Gendron. And um, so there's, you know, some 
connection there. And, um, but he puffed it up a bit, of course. And, um, and so you've got this narrative here, and it's about every silly thing a person could do when they're drunk, pretty much. And uh, as well as having a good time. And uh, so you see all kinds of embarrassments, you know, sleighs falling over, people puking, people pissing, people, you know, it just goes all in there, hidden away, obvious sometimes. But what I always find curious about these is that there's certain figures that, so help me, have to be portraits, right? They're so particular, they're not a kind of a generic type. And so you begin to start to think, okay, some of these aren't just so much for the market at large, but they're for a circle, you know? And um, with that in mind, let's move on and go through. Well, why don't you follow me? That's the, let me through and follow this the next way. So just briefly in this space, um, as I was saying, you know, he would, he would develop these sort of very specific themes that he repeated over and over and over again. Bilking the toll gate, uh, um, crossing the ice in the St. Lawrence, uh, uh, hunters returning with their spoils, uh, uh, various interior habitant scenes, breaking Lent, uh, um, scenes of that sort. And um, we have no reason to believe, and then, of course, the native scenes as well, and there's a sort of groupings of natives, almost ethnographic in their, in their depiction. I always think of them as sort of like 19th century museum dioramas with the figures wearing their native garb and you know, standing around. And um, So there's no reason to believe that any of these are connected to particular people. Uh, even though back in the 30s and 40s when people first started writing about Krigoff in a big way, um, uh, there's a great temptation to say, oh, well, this depicts his uh, French-Canadian family. This is, uh, his in these are his in-laws and so on. But no reason to believe this at all. The single sleighs, they are, in fact, portraits, commissioned portraits, this kind of thing. So again, British officers, they were served in Canada for three, four, five, six years. And before they went back to, to London, back to the UK, they'd commissioned this portrait and, uh, by Craigoff on the ice of St. Lawrence. Perfect momentum to take home with them but no relationship between the artist and the, and the sitter that, you know, of significance. Okay. I always gasp a little bit when I walk into this room, it, uh, and uh, some of you heard the, me remarking this before, but uh, the very first time I walked in, after we had it all installed, I came in and I turned around, and I thought, holy shit. You know, I had never seen Craigoff in daylight. And of course, they were painted in daylight, right? And look at how the skies and the, the subtlety of the color comes out all so much more. You know, you begin to see what the real excitement was in the 19th century. Um, so we're, we're blessed with these incredible skylights that bring northern light into the, uh, into the gallery space. So again, um, just very quickly, in this space we have just some of the great icons representing the different types, if you will, the different genres that he, uh, that he worked uh, through. And so there's a, gr a grand Montmorency, you know, even bigger than the other one. And uh, here's a, another Chez uh, Jolly Foo, you know, uh, after, after a night of drunken revelry. Um, over behind Greg there is a, a scene at Longoy, and uh, so a typical uh, family, uh, Quebecois family, who inevitably is, it was described again back in the 1930s as being Craig Off, his father-in-law and his uncle and his, you know, so on, but no reason to believe at all. There are some differences, though. There are a couple of pictures in here, three that we know were commissions, so not just sort of done for the market. Uh, one is right behind Vlad there, is the, uh, is the, uh, the steamship Quebec, and uh, the owner obviously commissioned that. 
Another one is this painting right in the middle. And um, this is, uh, this is um, Sillery Cove in, in, at, at Quebec City. And um, that is an image of the wealth of Canada at that point because uh, the economy was based virtually entirely on the proceeds of the timber trade. And the whole idea of the timber trade was that they logged all winter long up in the, the northern regions and they would pile all of the, the cut, logs on, uh, cut logs onto the river on the ice and then in the spring when, they, when the ice melted, down they'd come and they'd get out there with their spars and make sure that they didn't get into jams and, you know, get them all the way down. And then when they got to the St. Lawrence, they'd come down the Ottawa or they'd come down the, you know, the Saguenay or whatever, and they got to the St. Lawrence, they made them into huge, big rafts, big booms, and then uh, with tugs, pushed them all along to Quebec City where they marshaled them in these huge piles that are actually floating piles again, so that's in a cove, that's not on land. And then the British ships would come over and they'd load up and off they'd go to the UK and get made into ships and whatever. And um, there were two or three, half a dozen families. So it just made huge, huge fortunes from, from this trade. And this actually was a centerpiece. This was a commission for the Canadian Pavilion at the uh, 1860, gosh, I think it's seven or eight, 60, yes, Paris Exposition, the, the Exposition Internationale in Paris. And it was a centerpiece, and all around it, all in one huge frame, all interlocked frame, it was specially made by Montreal Framer, were images of this trade. So all different sizes and showing right from chopping down the trees, piling on the, you know, etc., etc., culminating in this huge, great thing in the center. So that's an example of the sort of official commissions that you could get. Then, um, coming closer, you've got to come in closer to see this. And Frank Gehry designed these not only to keep you away, but to give you something to lean on so you could really, really get in close. This is a painting commissioned. It's called simply on the, Saint, on the uh, Lake St. Charles. Lake St. Charles was up northwest of Quebec, and it had been um, homesteaded, I guess would be the term we would use today, though they didn't use that term then, uh, initially in the 1820s into the 30s by British officers who had retired and decided they were going to stay in Canada. So they began to farm up in this area. But it's an area up in the Shield, so it's kind of being like being up in Muskoka. And uh, so the farms didn't do very well. And sure enough, like in Muskoka, by the 18, late 1840s into the 1850s, certainly, it became cottage country. And so people would have summer homes up there. And um, this is a painting, actually, of Kriegoff. So there he is there with his drawing pad, his back to us, and two of his buddies. A man by the name of James Gibb, standing over here, who actually commissioned the painting and a man named John Budden over here facing them. And in the background, the, their favorite Huron guide. And this is all known because Kregoff wrote on the stretcher on the back, identifying everybody. And uh, somebody has made an argument recently that in fact this Huron guide is Zachary Vincent, 
and who we had a, a painting, a portrait of by Plamondon hanging in the Canadian wing. And he was, he billed himself as the last of the pure blood Huron and he was himself a painter. And so that's a very interesting connection with Craig Off, right? So, now to my story. And um, in 1999, late 1999, uh, we um, were opened an exhibition, big Craig Off exhibition, and had a book launch because we did a whopping big catalog with it uh, as well, with a big, a big publication on, on Craig Off trying to assemble a summary of everything we understood about the artist. And um, at the book launch, a um, man came up to me. Um, his name was Fairchild. And um, I said, oh, I recognize that name. And um, his great-great-grandfather um, was the first serious biographer of Craig Off. And in 1907, he published an extensive study, not a standalone, but it was an article that tried to summarize and bring all together everything we understood about Craig Off as in 1907. And um, Fairchild, um, the man who was talking to me, said um, in a slightly conspiratorial way, he says, uh, do you know why Craig Off left Canada so suddenly and... Uh, 1864, and I said, well, um, it was published in the Toronto newspaper at that point that um, Mr. Krigoff uh, um, was uh, leaving to, uh, was moving to France and or Italy uh, for reasons of health. And uh, he said, well, yes, that's what was said at the time. And uh, we know that he was gone for well, almost seven years a little over six years. And he said, well, I've never talked to anybody about this before, but he said, in my family, there's been this fractured, I can't call it a discussion, but just a kind of this sort of fractured handing on of information. And it was that Krigoff had fled Quebec because he'd been discovered in a homosexual relationship with John Budden. And it was just such a huge scandal that he had, to, he had to flee. And um, this was, I was known in his family and passed along. And it was layered in the family and made more complicated by the fact that James, I'm jumping ahead here, the, the man who was a biographer was, was, was James Fairchild Jr., um, who was a friend of both Buddens and Craigoffs, committed suicide in 1912. And so that became a kind of a other strand in the story and he said of course you know our family like every other Canadian family would never talk about any of this right it was just sort of things that were hinted at suggested and so on but to talk about suicide or homosexuality off you know no chance and uh, but it, it was always there and uh, and you know we of our generation now talking about his family say, you know, we believe that this, in fact, is true. So, of course, I think, okay, what, what, what's, what's this about? And started to go back and sort of look at the facts. And um, there's no question that Craigoff is very closely connected with John Budden. Uh, when he finally settled in Montreal in 18, late 45, um, 
He must have met Budden very shortly afterwards. Uh, he painted Budden's portrait, and we'll go and look at that afterwards, in 1847. And I have to say, it's by far the most intimate, feeling, generous portrait that he had ever painted, and or ever did paint. And um, so, knew him right off the bat. Uh, Budden worked for a big auctioneer in Quebec City called Maxim, and um, was the Montreal agent for him. And um, when Craigoff moved to Quebec in uh, 1853 from Montreal, it's always been understood that he moved on the invitation of John Budden. And um, Maxim was actually based in Quebec City. So um, digging back into it further, and sure enough, it's very clear that when he, when Krigoff moved to Quebec in '53, he actually moved in with Button. So the two of them, um, we don't know if they rented or whatever, but Krigoff is in the directory one year at this address, Button at the same address the next year, and there's sort of connections that go on up in that fashion. And um, it's a, it was a, uh, a residence, a very large house, and they just obviously had rooms in the house, not the whole house, called Ravenscliff. Um, on, the, on the outskirts of Quebec City, so sort of in the Tony rural region of Quebec City. And the house was owned by this Fairchild family, by the patriarch of the family, who was an American who'd come to Quebec for the timber trade and gotten deeply involved in that and made a fortune and so on. So that's how James Gibb Jr. got to know both Budden and Craigoff because they were staying in his father's home summer home, and Craigoff maintained a studio in Quebec City, right down by the old city, right by the uh, wall. And um, we have no record at all of Craigoff's wife in Montreal during the period that he's in Montreal, although his daughter shows up near the end and marries a British officer. And at that point, the officer and daughter rent a house on the Grand Allée, and Craig, that becomes Craigoff's address. Something happens between Emily and, and uh, her husband, and he leaves, and they break up. And um, it um, is not long after that that Craigoff does leave Quebec City. And it um, appears as though he actually goes to Europe with his wife. And so we think the wife must have come onto the picture again at about that time as well. He keeps in close contact with Canada from Europe. Um, you know, this commission happens after he's in, you know, he's in Europe. Um, he sends pictures back for sale constantly, both his own and others that he's finding. So he's, you know, he's sort of dealing, you know, in, in, in pictures as well. And then in 1870, he comes back with his wife and his daughter. And um, it's noted in the newspaper that Mr. Krigoff and his family are in Quebec for a visit, although he actually rents a place again. But next, the following year, 71, he goes on to Chicago, where it seems the daughter had been living. And uh, he then dies in Chicago in 72, year after that. And interestingly enough, it's John Budden who releases the news to the, to the Canadian press about uh, Craigoff's death. 
And um, so, you know, we'll never know. There's never, you know, there's nothing that substantial. No correspondence uh, survives, although Krigoff and Budden clearly did correspond. It's interesting that no Krigoff drawings survive either. And he obviously had to have sketchbooks or something because he replicates. You know, he has these little figures that keep appearing over and over again, so he must have been working from, from drawings. And um, the story is, is that Budden, in fact, had a fire. And uh, there was a fire after Krigoff's death, and all of that stuff was destroyed in the fire. And, uh, but it's interesting. So the link with Budden is from 1846 right on to after his death. It's the constant in his life is John Budden. I think we can all fit in. We were, we were speculating earlier that there was going to be thousands for this. And uh, we thought we were going to have to break you all up into small groups because the next room where we're going to go is, uh, is very, very small. But have, come up make sure you have a good close look at this before you go in. So Budden's the one with the really flashy coat and fancy hat. Now we're going to go in and see the Budden portrait. Come in close. The idea is this is your chance to really see the portrait, okay? John Budden was 21 when this was painted in 1847. Um, it's very interesting. He's shown as a sportsman. So his hunting bag here with a dead rabbit sticking out of it. But a man of real class. Look at that hat. Look at the shoes. Eat your heart out with those nice flat toes, eh? <laughs> Back in style again. <laughs> Long toes, but flat. Um, very warm, isn't it? I mean, it's, it is, uh, you know, I think it's going too far to assume it's very loving, but it is very warm. It's, uh, it's a great understanding of the, of the, of the figure. Um, it's the classic male pose to display the body, right? And um, the dog, Fido Fidelio. Loyalty, yeah. right? Absolute symbol of, of that at the time. Understood universally. Anybody who saw the picture, that's, you know, they would read it that way. And it's always fascinating to me that it's seen in a forest, and, uh, but it's, it's in a, you know, a kind of a sunken area here, right? There's a strange embankment here, and it's very, very dark, although there's light on the figure, but then this incredibly beautiful space that goes back and back and back an indeterminate distance and then with the glimmer at the end, right? So there's something there too, isn't there, about time and what if and where will and you know so on. So to my mind it's um, a painting of openness and hope and etc. Now, obviously we can read all kinds of stuff into any portrait. And uh, so take all that I'm saying with a grain of salt. And um, in my essay and in the, the talk that it's based on, I ended up by saying that it, um, this is rotten history, right? I mean, you know, going on and on and on like this on, on speculation, on hearsay, and, you know, and gossip, and not a single document to support anything, right? And, um, but what a boon for queer history. Okay, yeah. <laughs> hey, if we could nail this one. Hey. <laughs> and uh, without doubt, his most beautiful portrait. 
Okay, are there any questions? We had one, yeah. I, this question has to do with the lumber barons. Yeah. Purely business history. Did they own all the land they lumbered? Oh, no, crown land. From the government? Crown land. Okay. Yeah. So they stripped crown land. Yeah, that was how you did it in those days. Yeah. But this was also, in many ways, uh, the preparation for um, farming, for, for moving people in as well. And there was a counter thing going on. I mean, this is kind of curious, nothing to do with our subject today. But when you are looking at Craigoff as you go around, you see all of these scenes of pioneering, right? And yet the French had been almost 200 years <laughs> you know, on the St. Lawrence at that point. So these were not pioneer farms along the St. Lawrence. But what they were was that um, because, and this is a little complicated, but if, if you've ever flown into Quebec, into Quebec City, and sometimes even depending on the way you come in to uh, Montreal, and you fly over the St. Lawrence and you look down, you'll see the farms are incredibly narrow. These long, skinny farms that stretch from the river back. And, um, and what it was, was that during the, the, uh, both the French Civil Code and then the, and then the ultimate British common law, um, all property had to be divided equally among the male heirs. And so when a farmer and, and his wife died and they had f six sons, the farm had to divide it into six pieces. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it was absolutely essential that you have river frontage because there were no roads, right? So you had to have river frontage. And so within three or four generations, farms that had been this wide became, you know, 14 farms that wide. Mm -hmm. And um, so what happened was that you literally ran out of land. And so by the, 18, well, by the 1850s, the late 40s into the 50s, thousands and thousands of, of Francophone uh, British North Americans were migrating to either New Hampshire to work in the mills or to the American West. And um, the Catholic Church and the Quebec lower Canadian government became very anxious that the demographic was you know, gapping really quickly. And um, so um, they opened new land for settlement. And so they, they opened crown land along the Saguenay River, along the Gatineau River, that's when the Gatineau opened up, um, and so on. And that's what those images are all about. So they are pioneering in that sense, and, but they were very current and very specific to that moment. Thanks. So that's what's so fascinating about them is that they're, you know, these are all, I mean, these are obviously very much Teep, right? I mean, uh, types, and uh, except for the, the the dandy in the middle there, but uh, the the rest are all very much sort of replications of types. But when you look at the other paintings and and uh, you know the scenes of the of the pioneers or you know the the, the homesteaders, let's call them, or the, even the native scenes, um, as much as they're generic, they're based on very specific um, realities and uh, very specific observations and responses to stuff that was going on at the time. Are there Krieghoff paintings um, on display elsewhere? In the, in the Canadian wing? Yes. Or, uh, no, in the world. Oh, in the world. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. National Gallery has uh, some. Oh, yes. No, he was a, very much so. And, uh, but we have by far the richest, the largest and the richest collection, thanks to Ken Thompson, thanks to his passion. For a 57-year-old man. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, he struck a chord, right? I mean, he tapped into something and it really worked. And to his credit, he didn't, you know, I mean, of course there's a, you know, certain repetitiveness, but he did continue to grow as well. And, you know, if you spend time again looking around, you'll see that uh, it, uh, the work really, really does, does develop. Similarity to the Hudson River uh, artists. Uh, in a way, he's a little bit, he's sort of a, more of a, uh, the predecessor. His, his is much more romantic, really, and, and, uh, it, um, and dealing a bit more with conventions. But, uh, but nonetheless, still rooted very much, you're right, in, in a sense of place. That was very important. And, uh, There's a reflective, a reflection of a spirit. That yes, yes, <coughs> yeah, yeah, very much. Okay, well, thank you all for joining us today. Good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.